It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One of the most powerful words in the world is home. It's the place we all feel safe, secure, happy and comfortable. And no matter where we end up, it's where we all return to. Home can be anywhere. A country, a county, a town, a street, a house, a room, a bed, or simply a state of mind. Where we're surrounded by the things we like and the people we love, often called a family. A family can be anyone. Parents, siblings, offspring, friends, colleagues or neighbours. A network, a group or a single person. As family is not about blood ties or lineage, it's about trust. And for all of us, no matter who we are or what our life becomes, we all seek a family and a home. By 1949, the Second World War was over. And although it is said that the Allies won, in truth, we had all lost. With millions dead, countries in ruins, homes destroyed and families shattered. The Blitz was now a distant memory. The blackout was off, and with thousands of the city's civilians missing, although many were still mourned, some were forgotten. Two of those missing were an Austrian refugee called Ruth First and an East London orphan called Muriel Edie and having been strangled and raped by an unassuming little man called John Reginald Halliday Christie their bodies lay undisturbed in two shallow graves in a small back garden in Ladbroke Grove The deaths weren't deemed suspicious murder was never mentioned and with no witnesses, sightings and with no one suspecting him, his killing spree had stopped. Reg Christie hadn't killed in five years. It was almost as if those old strange urges had gone. But all that changed in the spring of 1949, when the second floor flat became vacant, and in need of a good home and a loving family, his next victim walked into Tenrillington Place. Some of what follows is based on the killer's own memories and perspectives. So what part of this story is true is up to you. My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. This is Murder Mile. And I present to you part three of the full, true and untold story of the other side of Ten Rillington Place. Today, I'm standing on St. Mark's Road in Labrook Grove, a street vital to our story, but after decades of haphazard redevelopment, only a few fragments of these key locations still exist. One street east is what remains of David Griffin's refreshment room and the Kensington Park Hotel. But on this street alone, number 11 St. Mark's Road was demolished Number 133 St. Mark's Road was rebuilt, and the side street, formerly known as Rillington Place, has been completely eviscerated. 
it's a classic example of post-war inner-city design, where a cash-strapped council with homes to build, but no plan, money or map, dumps a jumbled mishmash of architectural monstrosities onto a grid and says, Yeah, that'll do. So with no grassland, ponds or parks, having nowhere to play, from every bedroom echoes the incessant bleep of games consoles as rows of portly, pasty prepubescents enter a fantasy world where they imagine what it's like to stand up, to move, and even to talk. Wow! Except once a day, as each parent pushes their unsightly waddling sprog into the street to burn off a delightful tea of pot noodle, chicken dippers and blue fizzy drink, and as the fat pasty spawn waddles into reality, winces at the sight of natural light, and wheezes because they're upright, having been told to get away from your bloody computer, they stare at their bike, wondering where to plug it in, their football, searching for how to turn it on, and their legs, querying who ordered them and how they can get a refund, only to huff, grunt, fart, and start playing with their phones. Heads down, eyes open, world gone. But to be honest, that could be a description of literally anywhere. And although some of the sites are still here, with 10 Rillington Place now a memorial garden, and the skyline overshadowed by the blackened shell of the Grenfell Tower, where 72 people lost their lives, this whole street is tinged with sadness and tragedy. And yet, it was here, in the spring of 1949, that 19-year-old Beryl Thorley believed she had found herself a good home, a loving family, and a kindly neighbour. Beryl Susanna Thorley was born on the 19th of September 1929 in Lewisham Hospital, South London, to William a petrol pump attendant, and Elizabeth, a housekeeper. Raised during the Great Depression, as the stock markets crashed, currencies devalued, and the world descended into economic chaos, being a middle-aged working-class couple, living a hand-to-mouth existence in a tiny rented flat, this probably wasn't the best time to start a family. And yet, even though the Thorleys had three children in very quick succession. They lived an unremarkable life, with no highs nor lows, no joys nor tragedies, just the ordinary struggles of a very average family. Barely keeping their heads above water, from year to year, the Thorleys plodded on, moving from job to job, flat to flat, and bill to bill, with nowhere really to call home and lacking any real warmth, love or affection, only the tired routine of meals, baths and bedtime, they didn't feel like a family. As the oldest of three, although Beryl was a pretty petite girl, with bright twinkly eyes, soft fair hair, a button nose and an angelic smile, being eager to regain her rightful place as the baby of the family, having been usurped by her baby brother Basil, and swiftly shoved aside by little sister Patricia, Beryl's beauty belied a stroppy temper, an awkward stubbornness, and a childlike immaturity. Having uprooted several times in as many years, from Lewisham to Clapham to Hammersmith, as war was declared, the Thorleys moved into the top-floor flat of 112 Cambridge Gardens in Ladbroke Grove, just off St Mark's Road, and situated on the other side of the tube line, opposite Rillington Place. So except for their daily disputes, sibling rivalry, and the dull thud as Nazi bombs pockmarked the city, life was pretty uneventful. That is, until the late winter of 1947, when Beryl's mother passed away. 
It was a tragedy which split the fractured family even further. And with her siblings packing up and her father moving to Brighton, where he would remain like a distant relative for the rest of her life. With no home, no family, and being in the grip of grief, Beryl's life could have collapsed. But a few months prior, 17-year-old Beryl Thorley had met and fallen in love with 22-year-old Timothy Evans, a small, handsome Welshman with a thick mop of dark hair a childish sense of fun, a very vivid imagination, a steady job as a lorry driver, and a deep desire to become a good dad. And in a whirlwind romance, having met on a blind date in January, become engaged by March, and having tied the knot in September, shortly afterwards, the newly married Beryl Evans moved in with her husband Tim into his mother's three-story townhouse at nearby 11 St. Mark's Road. Surrounded by a loving family, with Thomasina, his mother, treating her like a daughter, Henry, his stepfather, protecting her like she was his own, being blessed with two sisters-in-law, Eleanor and Mary, and a close extended family, including Uncle Cornelius and Auntie Violet. Within the year, Beryl had a family, a husband, a home, and was blissfully happy. It had been a cold, cruel winter, and with the snowdrops shriveled and the daffodils struggling, Ridge's much-loved rosebush was little more than a tangle of dead vines and jagged thorns. His back garden didn't provide much privacy or space, being just 12 feet long by 10 feet wide, with a 5-foot brick wall on both sides and surrounded by two long lines of terraced houses. But as a little dot of bright colour on a drab grey landscape, this was his sanctuary. With Judy doing some digging of her own, as Reg dug his spade into the hard soil, he winced. The 51-year-old's back was riddled with fibrositis, and with his stomach plagued by daily bouts of diarrhoea, he'd given up driving for ultra-electrics and was now a desk-bound clerk at the post office savings bank. As he exhaled painfully, Rich pulled from the soil a milky white stick, all smooth, like it had been stripped of bark, but it was oddly broken and brittle. As Ethel exited the washhouse, she mumbled, Tease up, Reg. But he barely heard her. Instead, he just nodded, staring at the stick, perplexed. Something was missing from Reggie's life. He loved his garden. He liked his dog. His job was tolerable. And his marriage was... fine. But nothing excited him anymore. It was as if something inside him had died. As Reg stroked the bone-white stick in his hand, a flash of recollection widened his eyes. But you were different from the others. You know, quietly. Being eager to please her master, as Judy burrowed deeper into the soil, she too unearthed something pale, brittle and broken. So it had to be a really clever murder. Much clever. But times had changed. The war was over and Reg hadn't killed in almost five years. The newlywed Mrs. Beryl Evans lived at Tim's mother's house at number 11 St. Mark's Road for one and a half years. With it being a busy family home, with a mum, a dad, two sisters, Beryl and Tim, and two tenants on the top floor, although they lived comfortably, for a lusty young lad with a blushing new bride, it lacked privacy. But for now, it was enough. Beryl and Tim were very much kindred spirits. Being small, pretty and fun, they bonded quickly. But just like Beryl, Tim's sweetness belied a stroppy temper, a stubbornness and a childlike immaturity. 
And with both lovebirds being tetchy and fiery, with their fights formed of feet stamped, things thrown, and a few choice words, they both gave as good as they got. So the only friction was caused as Tim's mum would always take Beryl's side in any dispute, branding her own son a terrible liar. By all accounts, Beryl and Tim were just a very normal couple of young kids who were recently married, testing the waters and finding their feet in a family which was about to expand. On the 14th of October 1948, in the Queen Charlotte Hospital, Beryl gave birth to a beautiful baby girl. A tiny tot with sparkling eyes, rosy cheeks and a hot temper. And just like her parents, she was a little handful. But to Beryl and Tim, she was perfect. And with their family complete, they named her Geraldine. Being showered with gifts, love and the support of an extended family, Geraldine had everything. And with two proud and doting parents to cuddle her, life was good. But as the baby grew, the small back bedroom seemed to shrink. So needing more space, Beryl and Tim began looking for a flat of their own. With the sky bruised, clouds looming, and the distant rumble of thunder, Reg stood in his back garden, clutching the milky white skull of Muriel Eady. Reg was in a real quandary. For safety's sake, he knew that he should either bury it, smash it, or burn it. And although half a length of her thigh bone neatly propped up his broken fence, that could be easily mistaken for a stick whereas a skull is a skull. Reg knew he had to make the right choice. And besides, he didn't need those urges. And as a tube train thundered by, seated by the window, Joan Vincent spotted an advert in a second-floor window. It simply read, Flat to Let. Fortuitously, it was cheap, local, and would perfectly suit her old school friend and their new baby. The flat was at Ten Rillington Place. On the 24th of March 1949, with her bags packed, spirits high, and a new furniture set paid for by Thomasina, Beryl, Tim and Geraldine moved into their first flat on the second floor of Ten Rillington Place. It wasn't a great flat, as the stairs were a nightmare to navigate with the pram. It was heated and lit by gas only, and having just a bedroom and a kitchen, the only bathroom was a communal wash house and lavatory out back. But with a rent of just 12 shillings a week, being located one minute from Thomasina, and with the other tenants being an elderly widower on the first floor called Mr. Kitchener, and a lovely couple on the ground floor called Mr. and Mrs. Christie, keen for their own space, Beryl snapped it up, and her family home was complete. Beryl and Tim liked the Christies. They were old-fashioned, as a portly lady in her early fifties, Ethel Christie was a neat, quiet homebody who lived in her husband's shadow. And although she was clearly loving, warm and deeply maternal, with no children of her own, Ethel's eyes only lit up when Beryl let her hold the baby. And with Reg having a fatherly quality, who was kind, caring and patient, having been an ex-special constable, an injured war hero, and with a wide knowledge of medicine, she knew that Reg was experienced, trusted, and knowledgeable. For Beryl, having the Christies nearby was like being blessed with a second set of parents. For the first few months, as a new mum and dad, life was a struggle. 
but with Thomasina just one street away, the Christie's only two floors down. And although Tim was burdened by a low IQ, a bad lung, a disabled foot, and being almost totally illiterate, with money coming in, for a while, they coped. But being kindred spirits, what brought Beryl and Tim together also drove them apart. As having stroppy tempers, an awkward stubbornness, and a childlike immaturity. With Tim being a terrible liar, and Beryl still acting like the baby of the house, even though she now had a baby of her own. Neither of them were grown-ups. Instead, they were just children, trapped in an adult's world. On the 11th of July 1949, Tim started work as a delivery driver for Continental Wine House in Edgware Road, on the modest wage of £7 per week. But having falsely claimed that Geraldine was gravely ill, he asked for £3 in advance, £7 to cover a doctor's bill, and a further loan of £10, all in just two weeks. And with his employer regarding his work as unsatisfactory, by the 25th, Tim was sacked, and he didn't tell Beryl. Being secretly unemployed for several weeks, Tim kept up the pretense. And as the bills piled up, never once did he miss a boozy session with the boys at the Kensington Park Hotel, known as KPH. And yet, he always lost his temper if Beryl had a night out with the girls and left him at home with the baby. Feeling shut in, lonely and desperate, as Beryl struggled with the demands of motherhood, the dirty dishes piled up, the meals went uncooked and the flat became squalid. And although she wasn't a bad mum, being so depressed, although Thomasina would always babysit on Saturdays, it wasn't just to give Beryl a break, but as an excuse to give Geraldine a much-needed bath and to wash her clothes. With money tight, Beryl feeling low, and Tim due to start a well-paying managerial job at de Havilland's Airlines in Hatfield, 20 miles north of London. On Friday the 19th of August, they took in a lodger, 17-year-old Lucy Endicott, who provided a little extra income and kept Beryl company whilst Tim was away. So with his best suit cleaned, a fresh shirt ironed, his shoes polished and his suitcase packed, being ready to leave on the early morning train, Tim slept by the kitchen fire, whilst Beryl and Lucy slept in the bedroom, with Geraldine in the cot. But the next night, Tim returned. As always, Thomasina was right, and Beryl's instincts were spot on. Tim was a terrible liar. And having telephoned de Havilland's, they quickly confirmed that there was no job, no wage, and no record of a Timothy Evans. One week later, on the evening of Sunday the 28th of August, having been out to the cinema, as Beryl and Lucy hopped off the bus, stood outside of the KPH public house, they saw Tim waiting. Their bitter screams echoed all the way down Lancaster Road, St Mark's Road, and right into Rillington Place. With every house light turning on as Tim snapped, I'll give you a good hiding for going to the pictures and leaving the baby. Each curtain twitching as Beryl barked, I told you I was going out. And every wireless silenced as Tim spat, It doesn't make any difference. Your place is at home. Just you wait till I get you inside as he slammed the front door shut of 10 Rillington Place. And once again, the neighbouring streets were treated to yet another furious fight between the Evanses. In the preceding trial, the following incident was reported to the police 
As witnessed by Mrs Hyde on Lancaster Road, Mrs Swan at Nine Villington Place, and the Christie's on the ground floor. Gone were their petty childish squabbles and their tit-for-tat tantrums. As with the Evans's relationship irrevocably split, their silly spats had descended into physical assaults. And as Tim slapped Beryl's face, hollering, I'll bloody do you in, I will! Beryl grabbed a bread knife. To protect himself, seeing how Beryl was precariously perched, Tim screamed, I'll push you through the bloody window! Only for Lucy to trip up the hot-tempered Tim, as he threatened her, squealing, I'll smash it up! I'll run over in my van! Thankfully, before anyone was badly hurt, the fight was broken up by Thomasina. Lucy was asked to leave, Tim cooled off, Beryl calmed down, and a full statement was made to the police. The next day, Beryl told my wife she was going to get a separation. My wife and I agreed that, if she needed us to, we would adopt the baby. It was then, at a later date, that Beryl told me she was going to make an end of it. In short, she was going to commit suicide. With their relationship straining at the seams, being riddled with debts, jealousy and lies, and devoid of love, trust or patience, the more Tim slugged back the drink, the further Beryl fell into depression. And yet, life was about to throw the struggling couple yet another curveball, as Beryl was pregnant. But Beryl didn't want another baby. Confiding in her old friend, Joan Vincent, that she wanted to miscarry, as old-fashioned methods like punching herself in the stomach, necking neat gin, and overdosing on laxatives all failed. Beryl risked her life even further by swallowing poisons like quinine and ergot, syringing herself with glycerin and iodine, and trying to hook the tiny fetus out using a bent coat hanger. With each attempt having failed, as the unwanted baby slowly grew inside her, Beryl Evans became more sickly, pale and withdrawn. And then, on Monday the 7th of November 1949, I went upstairs and found Mrs Evans in the kitchen, lying on a quilt in front of the fireplace. She had made an attempt to gas herself from a gas pipe on the side of the fireplace and a piece of rubber tubing near her head. And when I opened the window, she started coming round. I don't know what she said, but a little while after, she complained of a headache, so I made her a cup of tea. My wife was downstairs, but I didn't tell her. Mrs Evans asked me not to. The next day, on Tuesday the 8th of November 1949, I went upstairs again. She still intended to do away with herself and begged me to help her. She said she would do anything if I agreed. I think she was referring to letting me be intimate with her. She brought the quilt from the bedroom and put it down in front of the fireplace. I turned on the gas tap and as near as I can make out, I held it close to her face. When she became unconscious, I turned the tap off. I got on my knees, but... I found I was not physically capable of having intercourse with her, owing to my fibrositis and my dicky dummy. Tim came home about six o'clock. I spoke to him in the passage, and I told him that his wife had committed suicide, and that she had gassed herself. We went into his kitchen, and he touched his wife's hand. I told Evans that no doubt he would be suspected of having done it, because of the rows and fights he had had with his wife. He seemed to think the same. He said he would bring his van down and leave her somewhere. Having quit his job, sold his furniture, gone into hiding, and repeatedly lied to his family about his wife's whereabouts, 
On the 30th of November 1949, Tim confessed to disposing of Beryl. And with her body being found just three days later, on the 13th of January 1950, faced with overwhelming evidence against him, Timothy John Evans was found guilty of murder. Beryl was a pretty, petite, but painfully immature young girl from a fractured upbringing who dreamed of nothing but a good home and a loving family. And having got everything she ever wanted, aged just 20 years old, Beryl Susanna Evans was buried in a simple coffin at Gunnersbury Cemetery. Except, inside her coffin, Beryl wasn't alone. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. If you enjoyed parts 1, 2 and 3, part 4 of The Other Side of 10 Willington Place continues next Thursday. And if you're a murky miler, stay tuned for some more dribbly bum plop after the break. But before that, here's my recommended podcasts of the week, which are Murder Under the Midnight Sun and The Hidden Podcast. I'm a true crime nerd and a lifelong Alaskan. And in my podcast, Murder Under the Midnight Sun, I bring you all the dark secrets of this frozen wasteland that I call home. We're the serial killer and missing persons capital of the United States. And we have our fair share of crazy crime stories. So if you want to hear some new cases that you've never heard of before, give my show a listen. Murder Under the Midnight Sun, available wherever fine podcasts are sold. Close your eyes and imagine a room. There's a secret door. A staircase that descends into darkness. A room filled with terrible wonders. It is a library of mysteries, a catalog of terrors. Join us bi-weekly down the hidden staircase for stories and cases you probably haven't heard of. You can find the hidden staircase on iTunes, Spotify, or any podcatcher. Don't forget to lock your doors and hold tight to your flashlight. A huge thank you goes out to my new and current Patreon supporters, whose kind donations have kept Murder Mile afloat. As last week, my laptop actually went kasblooey. That's a technical term, probably caused by all the cake crumbs inside. So thanks to them, I was able to fund some emergency repairs and keep Murder Mile on schedule. So Murder Mile's new IT repair team are Dawn Smith, Heather, Christy McGlue, and Jacqueline Wright. You are all, as British TV quiz host Jim Bowen used to say, super smashing good. Also a special thank you to Johnny and Sarah and Kristen who came along on a Murder Mile walk recently and spoiled me with lots of cakey goodies. So if I sound fatter, blame them. Another thank you to everyone who's purchased Murder Mile mugs and goodies from my website, I thank you. But the biggest thank you of the week goes out to everyone who listens to the show. Thank you for listening. It really does mean a lot to me. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Hello, Murky Milers. How are we? We good? We all good? We all having a good day? What are we up to? I say we. Obviously, I mean all of us, but uh, what am I talking about? I'm waffling already. I'm waiting for my tea to be done. Got a cake on the go. Uh, hope you're all well. Uh, oh, God. Tired. Uh, so, um, I'll say my usual thing. Uh, anyone who's not used to murder, uh, murky mar, murky mar, what is going on today? Oh, my God. Tired. Um, uh, what, what is going on? Hang on. Uh, right, brain in gear. It's because I've had a coffee and the coffee wasn't good, so I didn't drink it properly and I haven't had a cake. Um, if anyone is not used to Extra Mile, this is Extra Mile. This is all the unedited and waffly bits and unscripted and etc. I'm going to have to close the window because it's really bright. The sun's shining in. It's blinding me. There we are. Uh, uh, yeah, so we just I use this section to discuss the uh, case that we've just uh, gone through, which was part three of The Other Side of Ten Rillington Place, the uh, the story of Beryl Susanna Evans. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, so we'll dive into that in a little bit more shortly. Um, I didn't just realise that at the end of this, it is a celebration episode. Uh, this is episode 50. Hooray, episode 50. It's all very exciting. I didn't th- think we'd make it this far. Uh, so yeah, fifty proper episodes. I don't really count the extra ex- extra mile episodes as proper episodes, really. I just count the proper proper stories. So fifty proper episodes. So hey, well done, everyone. Hey, we've all listened to uh, me waffle fifty times at least. Um, so I'm about to have a tea. You're going to hear it go off very shortly. I've got a cake on the go. These are one of the ones still. Oh, it's going to boil. It's boiling. It's boiling. It's boiling. Um, one of the ones, courtesy of Sarah and Johnny, who came on my walk. Oh, here it goes. It's off. Once it goes, it goes. There's nothing you can do. Tea on the go. For, for Murder Mile Tea Aficionados, today's tea of choice is PG Tips. Got a good old, good old fashioned PG Tips. PG Tips, two sugars. Uh, yeah, still, still powdered milk. But because it's winter now. Now I can start buying proper milk, or or because I'm I'm trying to be more veggie. Um, oh, come on, strength. Um, I'm trying to be more veggie. It might be almond milk, but because it's so cold on the boat, I can actually start doing that now. Because underneath, or at foot level, it gets very cold. Or I can just leave it outside. Like I've got beers outside at the moment, and they're icy cold, which is very nice. Very nice. Last night when I was finishing writing this, I was having a couple of cheeky beers. So tea done courtesy of uh sarah and johnny who came on my walk last week birthday boy johnny uh kirsten uh kirsten was there i've eaten her fondant fancies i did say on the day they probably wouldn't make it home they didn't make it home basically i was shooting the videos for the extra videos that you see online for this for this series i shot over to west london to start filming them i'd four fondant fancies on the way out and then four on the way back so they were gone so to now, what am I having now? I'm about to have, oh, a frangipan tart. Oh, it's like a, like a little tartlet, palm-sized. Uh, looks like it was made in, in, in a kind of a, a, a circular case, but the case isn't on it anymore, so it's holding its own weight. And uh, on top is, oh, yeah, look at that. I'm not going to eat it during the show because I'm 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 sticking to my word. I'm not going to I'm not going to eat during the show because you don't want to hear people eating. But mm, this looks very good. I'm going to move away and have a little slurp though. Oh, cup of tea! I didn't wash it out, so it still tastes of coffee. Uh, who cares? Who cares? Uh, so, uh, where am I? Uh, I'll fill you in where we are. You might hear some coot noises shortly. Um, Obviously, uh, if you don't know, I live I live on a canal boat, and that's where I record and do all the writing and all that. Uh, don't have a proper studio, so sometimes coot noises filter in, which is ah uh, the coots are outside at the moment. They're so annoying. They basically basically they um they they're noisy when they're looking for sex, and then they're noisy when they've got kind of babies on the go, and then they're noisy when they've had babies, and then when they get rid of their babies, they're still noisy. Just the most noisiest thing in the world, uh, but they're, but they're, but they're cute as well. They've got big kind of paddly feet and they're very oh ducks outside having a fight. 
We've got uh, Canadian geese outside as well. So yeah, uh, but it's winter on the boat now. I've just just this week put the first fire on. Uh, needed to be done. It was very cold. I almost killed myself because I I cleaned out the chimney. I'd I'd flued it, and I I thought I did it right. But actually, what I'd done was I blocked the bottom of the chimney. So I lit a fire the other day and thought, why is there smoke pouring out the fire? Literally, it was pouring out, and luckily it wasn't a good fire, so it hadn't caught. It was just it was just uh, smoking. And it was seething out, and I realised I'd blocked the chimney. So uh, yeah, uh, so yeah, it's, it's so it's uh, cold at the moment, but I've got the fire on. Uh, I'm moored up in a place w- which uh, on the side of Victoria Park that I like to call Burglar's Paradise, uh, because there's some, lots of scumbags in this area uh, who like to go break into boats on a regular basis. But luckily, uh, I'm always in my boat, so they're welcome to come and burgle my boat. But right next to me, I have a two foot axe. Uh, I don't know why they break into boats. It's like we've we're all armed with axes and knives because obviously we have to chop up wood and cut ropes and stuff like that. So why break him? Do you know why? It's because some people don't have good security on their boats, and they have like like a fifty thousand pound boat, which is full of like their tellies and stupid stuff like that, and they protect it with a thirty pound padlock. Utter idiots. Oh, that's why they that's why they get um their boats broken into. Oh, this cake looks so good. Anyway, uh so uh obviously uh if you go to um uh either my Instagram account or the Murdermar website, there's my blogs are on there, uh all the, the Facebook pages, um all of the videos are on there so you can see the locations if you want to. These are the current locations as they look today. Uh, so that was really interesting to go and go and see the sites because obviously I know the areas relatively well so I was able to write about them but I haven't been there for a little while so it was nice to see them again so I head over to Perryvale which is where I moor up in winter and that's was the site of where uh, Ultra Electrics was where me- Amelia Edie met John Reginald Christ- Christie when he was working as a delivery driver so uh, that's by the big Hoover building, which is a big, famous, big white building, which is now being turned into flats. What isn't being turned into flats? Everything's being turned into flats, flats, flats or boutique hotels. Oh, I just hate that. Oh, that's why I hate London. It's getting on me at the moment. It really is. It's like all these that they, they build flats everywhere and they go, oh, new flats. And you go, oh, great. New flats. Fantastic. And then you look at the price and go, hang on. Locals can't live there. It's literally, and oh, it's so annoying. It's like the Shard. Everyone goes on about the Shard, which is what, what the biggest tower, I think it's the biggest tower in London at the moment. It's full of flats. It's it's full of flats. They're all sold, but they're all sold to like Russian oligarchs or Saudi businessmen, and they don't live there. So it's empty. It's effectively empty. It's, oh, oh, the business people are trying to take over London, and it's basically just an empty shell full of people who can't afford to work here anymore. So hence the waterway is full. Um, but, oh, well, how, how did I get onto that? So, uh, yeah, no, Perryville was interesting. So the A40, that I, the, you'll see the video on there. That was a nice sunny day, that was. Uh, I've got a video of there of the flowered corner, uh, which is where David Griffin's, uh, uh, David Griffin's uh, refreshment room used, used to be, where uh, the building's still there. It's just not used as a coffee shop anymore. And that's where Reg Christie met Ruth first. Uh, I've also put in a footage of KPH, which is uh, the Kensington Park Hotel, which will appear. It appeared in this episode, but it'll appear a little bit more prominently in the next episode, I think. I say this because I haven't actually written it yet. Um, I kind of write each episode, then record it, and then I move on to the next one. So sometimes things that I talk about here might not appear in this episode because I haven't edited it as well. Uh, there's a video of St Mark's Road as it looks today, so you can see you can see the junction. You can see how uh, St Mark's Road is connected to the tube line and to what used to be Rillington Place. And I've also shot a video there of what Rillington Place looks like now. Uh, It's now called Bartle Road. Um, Obviously, they entirely demolished Rillington Place uh, in the very early 1940s. Although, if you... you, I've mentioned this before... Coot is having a bit of a fight outside. If you uh, watched the fantastic film called Rillington Place with um, Sir Dickie Attenborough as John Reginald Christie, does a fantastic job, and John Hurt as Timothy Evans. Um, if you watch that film, they they 
before the building was uh, knocked down for the slum clearance, they used the original location. It's still there. So uh, have a look at that. It's it's, it's fascinating. Uh, I think I might have said in an earlier podcast that uh, they used the building opposite. No, they didn't. That was incorrect. I re-went back in to check because someone did say that they tried to flip the shot to make it look like it was opposite, but it's not. It is the real location. Um, no one was living there at that time and it, it was about to be demolished and they were like, right, sod it. But by that point, Rillington Place, uh, after all of this story had wrapped up, uh, they changed the name to, I think it was called Ruston Place, which is opposite Ruston Close, which is Ruston Close is still there today. And then... Uh, and then they entirely demolished it. So the world road doesn't even exist in the same format at all. Uh, it's entirely demolished. Um, but they, then they changed it to Bar- called what was left of it, Bartle Road. Uh, but now there's a little memorial garden there. There's nothing really written there. If you, you can go on Google and just type in Ten Rillington Place, and you'll see a little uh, a little link on there saying you know Ten Rillington Place Memorial Gardens. It's right within sight of the Grenfell fire disaster. Uh, that literally does loom over it in the sky. Uh, so it's two huge tragedies right next to each other. Um, but yeah, no, you can look at that online. But the, there's videos for that online as well. Um, so, oh, I'm going to have a tea. Oh, a cup of tea. Lovely. Uh, so uh, what was your thoughts on part three? Um, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you've seen... The film Ten Rillington Place, or the, or the the series with Tim Roth and Emily Mortimer called Rillington Place. We read any, any of the books. You're probably going, "Hang on, Michael, you've missed bits out," uh, I, or you're thinking that I've mistold, missold, missold, missold the story. Uh, I haven't. Um, this is deliberate. What I've deliberately done is I've told you a perspective. If you go right back to the start and you listen to the start of each episode, what I've deliberately said is. Uh, which part of these episodes is true is up to you. So that's what I'm doing is is in the first episode I I I I, I tell you so much truth and then I tell you Reggie's perspective and then I, and second one I told you truth then Reggie's perspective and then I merge the stories together so the balance between truth and his his fiction his perspective slightly skews and then with this episode because this was when I was going through the archives and I was like, oh, this is a side of the story that I never knew before. This was this was in reading all of his witness statements. I was like, oh, wow, this is entirely different to what I what I imagined. Uh, so this is going to be one perspective. We will conclude. Beryl's story concludes next week as well. Uh, there'll be more about Beryl. That will mostly be Tim's story. Uh, but we will learn a lot about but all three of them really uh, i'm looking forward to part three it's going to be an interesting one to write but this this was what the way this was this was what fed me into this story that as soon as i read this part of the story about christie's perspective on the murder because obviously we only have his perspective because obviously beryl's dead and tim wasn't there so that's what I wanted to do was I was like, OK, let's tell let's tell his perspective. But then obviously next week you will hear something slightly different. Or will you? We don't know. I haven't written it yet. Uh, so obviously uh, because of that, I'm not going to give you too much information on this case at the moment because um, obviously it continues next week and I don't want to ruin it. Uh, but what you may have noticed on this one, if you if you have seen the film uh, or read any of the books and things like that, you probably again, like with the last episode with Muriel Edie, you've probably gone, hang on, where was the gas mask? Where was the gas mask that he put over her mouth to um, uh, force her to inhale? It's not there. It doesn't exist. Trust me, I've gone through the archive really, really carefully, and I, all the time I was like, where's this inhaler? Where's the makeshift inhaler? And it's just not there just not there at all um he uh with mural ed he used the uh remember the the square uh glass container with the pipe going in it and uh she had the uh uh what's it called the scarf over her head so she was inhaling the vapors but obviously in the story that we've just told she was trying to kill herself using the gas at the time um just to say um coal gas uh, in the 1940s uh, was neat 
coal gas. So you could still technically kill yourself by putting your head in the oven or, or, or just breathing in gas. Whereas in the later years, uh, they, they started put what was it they put in? They started putting in some kind of sulfur into the gas. So because people were trying to kill themselves by gas themselves, uh, they put a sulfur in so it would make you sick before you could inhale too much. So if you were to try and put it, I mean, don't do it, obviously. But if you were to try and put your head into the oven today, you would be sick before you died. Uh, it's a deliberate sulfur chemical that they put in there deliberately to make sure that no one no one uh, tries to kill themselves. But yeah, no, so the, the, the gas mask and the inhaler wasn't there. And as Christy says, you know, uh, she was trying to kill herself. Uh, there was a uh, rubber tubing going from the gas tap. Because uh, don't forget, it was just, they had no electricity in there. Um, it was just all, all gas lighting and gas gas heating not that there was very much heating they had a, a coal fire there as well which wasn't wasn't on the uh, the time because obviously she was trying to gas herself uh, although although in his statement he does say he does say that the gas fire was on he says it was on and then it was off he gives loads of statements so that's what i'm going to be doing with this story is really especially with this story because there are different perspectives from christie and that's what makes this interesting is is what i've just told you is one perspective from christie's perspective and then on the next one, we will hear Tim's perspective. And then we will also hear Christie's other perspective. And then <laughs> what, I'll try and, what I'll try and do is marry them all together. God, it's going to be a difficult episode to piece together. Then I'm going to marry them together with the, the truth of what we know, of what we can prove. So that's what I've been doing throughout the earlier episodes is backing up as much as we can with with truth so not going down and going through any theories too much just saying okay what what do, what does the forensics tell us what does the autopsy tell us and backing that up with with the real story and then using christie's perspective to give you an insight into his brain uh and it is an interesting brain um again this was another episode that was uh odd to write oh oh god that was hot oh um it took a lot longer to write this episode and i really really thought i was i was struggling it took like it took like three days to write three pages and normally i have like the full six or seven pages done in three days but it really was a difficult one to write only because this was what made it weird was that christy hadn't done any murders in five years well we we, we say that but had he there's, there's meant to be an absence there where Christie hadn't murdered in five years. But there's a lot of people who say there was a lot of uh, m murdered prostitutes in Soho, as you know, around that era. And there are many that they believe Christie also murdered as well. Because uh, um, he did utilise prostitutes. Although he says he doesn't, doesn't which is uh, the uh, dichotomy of what's going on, which is great. So, um, but it, it made for a very difficult episode, this one to write, because if you think about the first two, the first two are very much uh, kind of uh, two ladies with very, very tragic upbringings, like, you know, an Austrian refugee, Austrian Jewish refugee escaping from the Nazis. And then we got a uh, uh, an East London orphan who'd been uh, mum's dead, abandoned by her dad, abandoned by the rest of her family, you know, both diff very difficult stories to tell. And then you've got Beryl Evans, who's, you know, it's it's not a bad life. It's not awful. She's not she's not beaten. She's not abused by her family. Do you know, they're not drug addicts. They're just not, you know, a family struggling, not very loving. They kind of feel a bit stuck together, do you know. And then, but, but then she kind of finds a family. Everything goes well. And then, do you know, she's quite childish she's quite immature she gets a, a husband who's immature as well they're both like little kids really and they're quite young and uh, they just don't they don't do it right they don't do everything that they're meant to do in order to get everything going well and you know it just it, it falls apart there so it's not a tragic story so that makes it kind of harder to tell and it's also harder to tell because christy's not doing anything it's like at this time he's not doing anything at all um so oh just 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 uh for the sake of this i have i've slightly moved something in time only because we don't have an exact date for it so if there's pedants out there they'll be going hang on uh why didn't joan vincent when she was going past on the on the tube see 
that Christy was holding a skull. I've basically just put those two events together just because it, it, it just speeds up the narrative. But it, it, we don't know when they happen. We don't know when she... Well, we know that she would have gone past in early March because the uh, tenants of the second floor of Ten Willington Place moved out. I've got the date somewhere exactly. Oh, and it was the 8th, 8th of March that they moved out. So it would have been between the 8th of March, 1949, and the 26th when the Evanses moved in. So she would have gone past on the tube somewhere between that point, but she doesn't remember when. Uh, Christy and his dog, Judy, so he found that the uh, mural Edie's thigh bone, that he was he was digging up, he forgot that he put the body there, it had all decomposed, he dug up, he went, what the fuck is this? He went, oh shit, it's a thigh bone. Um, roughly around the ty- same time as well, his dog was digging and dug up, the he- dug up her skull. Right. Um, now, there's no exact date for exactly when he did that. Uh, he gave me multiple statements. Uh, in one of the statements, he said this was prior to the death of Beryl Evans. And in another one, he says it was after the death of Beryl Evans. So we just can't tell. We know that it definitely... We we know that it definitely... We know that it definitely wasn't uh, after December the 7th, 1949, which I will explain next week. But I'm not going to explain this week. Um... Uh, but obviously we don't know exactly. So I've put I've kind of put those two scenes together. But it, it just because it speeds up the story. Uh, but it, it it makes sense. Oh, where am I going with this? Uh, but no. So um, oh, so I, I was definitely going to say. So I know I've said this is an eight parter. You've heard me do this before, where we do like Blackout Ripper was meant to be four parter, and it ended up being eight or nine. I can't remember. Um, so I've already mapped out the eight, but I've always had a ninth episode kind of bubbling under, which is the 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 life of John Reginald Christie. Um, so as we're going through, I'm telling you bits and bits about his life, and obviously this is your option to kind of read, uh, to listen into it, and go, oh, okay, is this true? Is this not true? Who knows? It's kind of his perspective. His perspective changes. Some things are true. Some, some things are not true. Some things are half truths. So what I've decided to do is do a ninth episode where I just go through. I do like uh, the the life of John Reginald Christie from from uh, b- uh, birth to grave, uh, telling as many truths as possible without his kind of um, his bias or his kind of uh, perspective. So, uh, oh. Um, so I hope you enjoyed the edit from last week. Obviously, you know, because because I'm recording this now and I'm about to start editing this, so I, I haven't edited this episode yet. Even though you've just heard the edited version, I'm recording this bit before I edit it, so I don't know how it's going to sound. So obviously, now I know how last week sounds, so I kind of enjoyed that. I edited it and I didn't know how it was going to happen, and I didn't know how to get across the idea of Beryl Evans uh, inhaling all the fumes. Obviously, I've got music bubbling underneath. I used the familiar sounds that you'd heard of Rillington Place. Uh, but I thought it really worked nicely. The bubbling sounds underneath, they were kind of bloop, 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 bloop. As, she, as uh, the gas was going into the fryer's balsam and bubbling and she couldn't smell it. So I thought that worked quite nicely. Um, and we've got familiar sounds on there of Rillington Place. Um, obviously, one of them I recorded quite... It was just one night. It was bonfire night. Obviously, on November the 5th here, we have everyone, every idiot is setting off fireworks. Uh, I was in that nice Jewish neck of the woods uh, with, a, with a really nice bakery with the Belgian buns. Uh, oh, I'd love to go back there. Um, and it was a nice, quiet part of the canal. And in the distance was a train line going past. It's the overland train. And the uh, fireworks were going off in the distance. So I thought, oh, get my phone out, record that. Because I record a lot of the sounds just using my phone. And it, it worked out really nicely. It sounds like old trains going past, the old tube trains, and uh, bombs being dropped. So that's what you can hear. It's actually, it's, it's, it's not actually bombs. It's, um, it's bonfire night, but it works really nicely. And, and that... Uh, where I recorded that, that was on the Upper Clapton Road, which is, if you go to my website, you'll see that that's one of the real murder miles. Obviously, there's, there's a lot of gang violence there, so there's a lot of uh, 
there's a, a mile long stretch of road which they all refer to as murder mile but there's there's technically five murder miles in the re, in the in the in the real world real world yes in the world um so that was good um uh, i've had fun uh playing the role of john reginald christie uh that's my own particular version i do apologize for anyone out there who is from halifax Obviously, you know that my accents aren't the best, but I, you know, I'm doing a version of Christy. Um, obviously, you've heard worse of me. <laughs> my Jamaican accent. I think I've done a French one. I've done a Russian. Yeah, some Scottish. I threw I threw in a Sean Connery a little a couple of weeks back. So um, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, where are we now? Okay, so uh, next week, as I said, we're going to do a Tim's story. So we're going to because I've deliberately not told you tim's story here i've given you information but next week is going to be tim's story uh we will more learn more about beryl in there and especially we'll learn a hell of a lot more about my socks upside down that's really weird um we'll learn more about uh reggie's perspective about what we've just seen uh and there'll be some more truths some more lies and more bizarre details yeah but i'm not going to tell you anymore because i don't i don't want to want to ruin it for you um so um obviously i think this episode goes out on the 6th of december uh i'm trying to get myself i'm trying to keep a week see this is 21st of november right now i'm trying to keep myself a couple of weeks ahead so hopefully i can have some time off over christmas and not be behind with any episodes uh, and then finish hopefully 20th of january ready for about six weeks off so i can fix the boat uh, and then do research for season three. Season three. I know. See, Murder Mile does it properly. 20 episodes, 30 episodes a season. Some some professional podcasts out there, they do six episodes a season. Six. It's not a season. Don't get it. Anyway, anyway, it's their choice. They can do whatever they like. Uh, but so I was going to say, uh, this episode obviously goes out on the 6th of December. Uh, if you did want to buy uh, any Murder Mile goodies, if you wanted mugs, or uh, we got the Murder Mile cards, which I, there's a little note on there, you can tell me what to write or to who to, and I can send it to uh, either you or someone as a, a, you know, a Merry Christmas one. We've got Murder Mile mugs. Um, just to say, um, the last posting dates uh, for Christmas, so for uh, Australia and New Zealand, is the 10th of December. Uh, for USA and Canada, it's the 14th of December. Uh, and then um, I'm going to be away for a couple of days after that. So for the United Kingdom, if you want stuff, anyone in the UK or... Uh, so Europe, I think Europe is about the 14th or 15th as well. Uh, UK is the 19th of December because I'm going to be away after that. But... Uh, if anyone is in America or any other places, don't forget, I do. Uh, if you go to the Murder Mile website, I, uh, there's a link to the Threadless account. Uh, so you can order kind of T-shirts and anything, really. You can make whatever you want. You don't Literally, the logo is up there. You just basically click any color T-shirt, any type of mug, whatever. And literally, and it, it's great because it doesn't. It means I don't have to do anything. Literally, a company in America deals with it. And they send, they send me like, you know a couple of pounds afterwards uh which is which is fine for me i don't have to do anything uh but after that point if if you leave it to the last minute and you're like oh i still want some uh murder mile treats for my relatives and things th there's some last minute goodies on there you can order a uh murder mile voice cameo um so i'm gonna give one to one to my uh good friend police constable arsenal guinness i've already messaged him uh, he is going to do a voice cameo at the end of this episode. He won't have to pay for that. I've asked him to do that. But that's what will happen is basically I will, if you want someone to have a voice cameo in it, as long as you've got a decent enough microphone, like something decent on your phone and you can send me a good quality uh, audio, uh, you can have a voice cameo in an episode of Murder Mile and I'll give you a cameo credit at the end. Uh, or you can have a personalised message from me. Uh, that can either be a video message or a uh, an audio message. Or uh, you can have an, an episode dedicated to you. Uh, so I'm not too sure how I'll do that. That might be at the, it might be at the front. It might might be at the front. I don't know, front or or the end. I don't know, but it would be like only so it would be only one dedication per episode. But um, 
in a cheaper way you can do shout outs so you can do a shout you can literally if you, like it's someone's anniversary or something you can you can pay for me to do a shout out or something and of course there's ebooks uh, i know i've hoard myself out with this but obviously anything to keep murder mile afloat at the moment is great so you know all these simple little things help uh cool that's it that was uh part three. Oh, yeah so i've got a mug uh, next to me which i'm about to go to the post office and post it off uh someone has bought that for uh a loved one for christmas so it's very exciting uh so uh ladies and gentlemen thank you so much for listening to murder mile that was part three of the other side of ten Rillington place i will uh, i look forward to oh, i can see i've messed it up again um such and such etc uh lots of love bye bye <laughs> want to get a chiseled look in the jawline sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from juvederm volux xc juvederm volux xc is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with juvederm volux xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist visit juvederm.com that's j-u-v-e-d-e-r-m.com not for people with severe allergic reactions allergies to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.